And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. And you know what that means, because it's Wednesday. It means Bruce Anderson and Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Our podcast is brought to you by Quest Trade, Canada's fastest-growing and award-winning online broker. Tired of getting dinged with fees every time you buy or sell U.S. stocks? Well, good news. With Quest Trade, you don't have to. You can hold U.S. dollars in your trading account and avoid expensive, forced conversion fees every time you trade U.S. stocks. Switch today and get up to $50 worth of free trades. Visit questrade.com to open an account and use promo code QUEST. Conditions apply. Looking for a way to zhuzh up your dinner options? With 21 flavorful recipes every week, Chef's Plate ensures dinner time will never be boring. Our menu includes easy and quick 15-minute meals and favorite classics, including vegetarian options and more. We don't compromise on the yum factor. Each Chef's Plate box comes with pre-portioned ingredients, measured out perfectly for your meals. Say goodbye to wasted produce and hello to saving money. Go to chefsplate.com and click the sign up button and apply the code the bridge. That's the bridge for 50% off your first two boxes. Yes, it's an SMT day. That means Bruce Anderson joins us from Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in Toronto. This is the bridge, the Wednesday edition. SMT, Smoke Mirrors and the Truth. Good morning to you. Good day to you. Morning, Peter. It's good to talk with you again. You know, it's hard to to turn on the TV or listen to the radio or go online and not be bombarded with the story in British Columbia, which is just overwhelming at every level that you look at it. The, the pictures, the stories, the rescues, they are all... Um, just absolutely top of the page. They are the big story of the day. I mean, when you've got thousands of people being relocated from their homes, hundreds of people being literally airlifted by helicopter away from their homes because they're in dire threat from floodwaters, you see all kinds of different impacts in terms of the operation of the province from railways to highways to ports um, and this is not going to be cleared up in a day this is going to take a long time a lot of careful thought about the future and how to handle situations like this which everybody says are going to become much more commonplace because of climate change but this one seemed to catch at least some people off guard totally off guard uh, while south of the border, the state of Washington seemed to be, you know, prepping their people and their emergency services, they expected there were going to be problems. Um, but BC is responding as best they can, and maybe the feds are going to get involved here as well. But it's an overwhelming story. I'm going to play you a one-minute clip um, just so you get a sense of just how widespread this is. This was the... Uh, Solicitor General, the Minister of Public Safety in, in British Columbia, Mike Farnsworth, was giving the update um, last night. Uh, so th- this is, uh, you know, whatever, 12, 16 hours uh, old at this point in terms of the data in it. But what's important is, is the scope. When you listen to just how wide-ranging the problems are, uh, in BC. Listen to this. This is about a, a minute or 70 seconds or so. Uh, so 
Here he is, Mike Farnsworth, the Minister of Public Safety in British Columbia last night. Since early this morning, heavy search and rescue teams have been working to reach and rescue people trapped in their cars due to the mudslides. They are working in challenging weather, but they are working as quickly and safely as possible to help people. Progress has been made. So many people have been rescued by helicopters from mudslides near Agassiz and Hope, with crews working to rescue the remaining people in the next few hours. I want to thank Agassiz and the Seabird First Nation for their support in housing those evacuees. A slide near Lillooet led to approximately 50 vehicles being stuck. Ministry crews and the Pemberton Search and Rescue Team have rescued those on site and they are being housed in Pemberton. Over 20 emergency operation centers have been, evac have been activated as well. Emergency Management BC continues to work with local governments, MLAs and MPs to share the latest information and share what they are seeing and hearing in their communities. Since this morning, there has been a slide near Hague on Highway 7 that has trapped many vehicles. Exact numbers are still being assessed. Work is underway to rescue those vehicles and those people now. So you get a sense of just how, uh, you know, widespread this is and it's just sort of one you know one hit after another as the the minister sort of surveys the damage uh in british columbia from this storm that seemed to dump more water on on parts of the province in a couple of hours than usually happens in a month and nothing can you know the power of water is something we constantly underestimate uh, but it is incredibly damaging, and you just need to look at some of these pictures and listen to clips like that to understand how. What's uh, What are your feelings on this, Bruce? Well, I think one of the local mayors used the term, it breaks your heart to see what's going on, the damage to, uh, to lives and uh, the loss of life, at least one life so far, and perhaps more. Um, the great devastation to property, the sense of... Uh, vulnerability I think that a lot of people must feel in the province of British Columbia right now and and to realize and good for the public safety minister Mike Farnworth in British Columbia to link this to climate change not to make a political point but to really reinforce the um, the fact of life I think for British Columbia which is that that it it seems like as a province, because of the nature of it, it's more exposed to some of the risks that come with climate change over time, whether it's forest fires and people in uh, all parts of the province experiencing a lot of smoke and, um, and haze and uh, air quality issues uh, every year, or whether it's the vulnerability to mudslides um, like these because of the the kind of the geographic nature of the province and the, you know, the mountains and the roads. I, I've spent a lot of time in BC and I kind of, I know the beauty of being able to drive through these mountain passes and into these smaller communities and, and um, to realize just how vulnerable those connection points are. I, I, the last thing I would say, Peter, is it, it, you know, it does feel to me, I was talking to a group of people in British Columbia yesterday, um, mostly in the business community and, we were discussing some of the data that I've been gathering in the province and they were remarking at how, how strong the consensus was to take action on climate change in the province. 
including in the province's uh, business community. And I was saying, look, I, I do think that um, there's almost no organized entity of any political stature uh, or effectiveness that is against action on climate change now in Canada. They're skirmishing about the policy mix and, and occasionally you'll have somebody like a Max Bernier who says we don't need to do anything about this. But really, the consensus is very strong. The motivation levels are higher than ever. Um, and hopefully, um, there won't be good that comes out of this, obviously. But um, if it does reinforce the sense that we have to take more action over time to, to solve climate change, then um, that can't be a bad thing. You know, the, the politicians and... Um Bureaucrats got to be careful on the way they deal with this. I mean, this this is an, an overwhelming tragedy, as you said. We're lucky, at least so far, um, the loss of life has been, uh, you know, minimal. Um, and, but there are all kinds of of ways of looking at the at that in terms of the cost of this, whether it's in human life, whether it's on the agricultural side. I mean, there's there's all kinds of issues of an, uh, of the uh, various. Uh, farms and farmers who, who've got to deal with the flooded lands and, you know, not just crops, but uh, animals that uh, that have been severely impacted because of this. Um, but it's a delicate situation for, you know, political leaders, especially. And I think, you know, we I think we both assume that the, the prime minister will probably land out there somewhere in the next few days. I mean, he's tied up in this Washington meeting with uh, Biden uh, in the, in the next little while and the Mexican leader, but the, the the issue becomes, what do you say and how much do you talk about climate change at a time when people are, you know, suffering greatly as a result of what's happened in the last, you know, 48, 72 hours, and trying to determine what you do in the short term, because, I mean, things have been wiped out. You know, access to the port of Vancouver, the you know the the the, the busiest the you know port in the country, um, the rail uh, access to the port, whether it's shipping grain um, overseas or or whether it's you know moving people or 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 gas or oil or whatever it is that they you know move in rail cars, um, roads washed out. Um, uh, you know, major areas the Coquihalla uh, Highway severely impacted i mean these things are not things you fix overnight they it's going to take time and it's going to take probably billions of dollars um in in the uh, in the short term uh, to deal with these situations but is that building for the future a future that is severely impacted by climate change or do you have to rethink a lot of these things well i, I think probably the reality is, is that we need to do more of everything that's connected to the challenge of climate change. And, and there has been at least somewhat a debate between those who say climate change is going to happen. We're not really going to be able to stop it. So let's just get on with building the systems and structures that can protect us from the worst uh, effects of it. And there's certainly an argument that that's a prudent thing to do to build more resilient infrastructure and uh, and that sort of thing. I think the whenever anybody sort of uses that, though, as an argument against taking action to try to limit the rise in the Earth's temperature, 
uh, I think that we have to be concerned about that. I think that um, we'll always be, if we don't address the rising temperature, we'll always be playing catch up to a series of uh, of disasters that we know will happen as the as the planet warms. So I think we need to do both. I think it's right thing for the uh, provincial officials and others involved to focus first on meeting the basic human needs. But I also think it's important for them to acknowledge they're not telling people what they don't know when they raise climate change. They are making a connection point that most people already get, the vast majority of people already get. And they also understand that you can't link climate change specifically to one particular weather act. But most people in most parts of Canada have seen enough to be convinced that there are more disasters that are happening and they are happening in a time when the temperature of the planet keeps on going up. BC can certainly attest to that just this year. I mean, the the issues they've had, not just with this uh, weather. And Alberta with the fires in Fort Mac and the floods in Calgary. It's um, it's, it's a pretty clear pattern for most people now. And not just Western Canada. You know, it's... um, you know there are examples right across the country, but the point I guess I was making about BC—they've—they've they've had it bad, like just this year was just a couple of months ago. Yeah, uh, that they, the town wiped out basically by a fire. Yeah, exactly. the brunt of it is being felt there, no question about it. And and it's also a place where I think that they uh, understand that their economic model as it evolves to provide sustainably produced products to the world, see some opportunity in a movement to solve this problem. So it's a, it's a place in the, in the country where um, the challenges and, and I guess to some degree, the longer term um, opportunities that might arise from this huge problem of climate change are, are kind of a little bit more evident and more discussed. And, and um, so uh, let's let's keep hoping for better days in the in the next several days for our friends in BC. And one of the things that will, uh, you know, help the situation in the short term is that the, it, this is one of those moments where Canada responds, not at necessarily uh, just at a government level, but at a human level, in the sense of people concerned about their, you know, uh, friends uh, and fellow Canadians in BC. But they'll they'll do more than just feel bad about it. They'll actually respond to it by going to help and you'll mm-hmm. see you know different groups of whether they're um, you know rescue workers or you know flood damage control people or what have you um, they'll start to arrive in BC if they haven't already from different parts of the country where uh, you know at a time when sure there are divisions in the country over a variety of things but not on this and yeah. uh, and they'll be there to help um, okay gonna move Topics. Let me take a quick break, and then we'll come back. We're going to talk about <laughs> the latest situation for Aaron O'Toole, and I'll have a little explanatory note on that before we start, but uh, that's right after this. Our Black Friday sponsor is The Economist. If you don't already know, its expertise lies in making sense of the world's most important developments. It offers completely independent opinion and analysis, giving you a balanced global view of an issue instead of a biased or politically motivated opinion. And don't be fooled by the name. It covers pretty much everything from culture to science and technology, from politics to finance and business. It's Black Friday. Get 50% off the annual digital subscription to The Economist. This gives you access to the website, their app, 
podcasts, newsletters, webinars, and more. It's a great offer, and we think it'll make a difference the way you see the world. There's a reason world leaders read it. We hope you will give it a try. Just visit economist.com slash bridge50 to get 50% off your first year, including full access to the app and economist.com. That's economist.com slash bridge50, where 50 is a number for 50% off your first year to enjoy The Economist whenever and wherever you want. If you have type 2 diabetes, it might be time for you to have a heart-to-heart with your own heart. There's no sugarcoating it. Type 2 diabetes affects more than just your blood sugar levels. It can impact many parts of your body, including your heart. If you have diabetes and a history of heart disease, there are medications that, along with diet and exercise, can lower your risk of dying from problems related to your heart and blood vessels. Talk to your doctor today and visit myheartmatters.ca to learn more. Brought to you by two of Canada's leading pharmaceutical research-based companies. Looking to cook smarter and faster at home? Chef's Plate Dinner Boxes give you back the time spent on meal planning and grocery shopping by delivering everything you need to cook delicious meals right to your door. Each Chef's Plate box also comes with pre-portioned ingredients measured out perfectly for your meals. Say goodbye to wasted produce and hello to saving money. Go to chefsplate.com, click the sign-up button, and apply the code THEBRIDGE. That's one word, the bridge, to get 50% off your first two boxes. And we're back with Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge in uh, Toronto on this day. Morning after, another uh, great... Leafs victory, nine out of ten games. But <laughs> who's talking? You know, I mean, the Jets are playing great in Winnipeg. The Oilers oh, what, are playing what great. Month is it? Oh, it must be. Uh, it must be a month before Christmas. It's only the. Uh, it's only Montreal and Ottawa who, uh, sadly, are not doing too well. But it's early in the season, and Montreal got off to a horrible start last year, and then came racing back and uh, almost won it all. Of course, that was with Kerry Price and Shea Weber and a few other important parts that aren't there with them right now. Um, anyway, enough about hockey. Let's talk about a different kind of hockey, and that's the the hockey game that goes on in Ottawa, especially in the Conservative Caucus. Now, every time we talk about this, Bruce, uh, I get mail, some of it saying, well, you lay off the conservatives. You guys are always picking on Aaron O'Toole, and it's not fair. You know what? Uh, we don't <laughs> pick on him. His own party's picking on him. I mean, they are they are uh, divided to a degree, and it's unclear as to just how deep the division is. But it comes up weekly and sometimes daily, and it did again this week, and to the point in which. The leader, Aaron O'Toole, um, had to toss out of the party uh, a member of the caucus, a senator, Denise Batters, who wanted a uh, who wanted to dump Aaron O'Toole. So this fight uh, is not a creation of the media; it's a creation within the party itself, and it does. You know, you sometimes you have to gauge the degree of damage that it does. I remember, you know, going back 40 years, that it used to be the constant uh, whine on the part of some conservatives was all this anti-Joe Clark stuff is really damaging the party, and 
uh, we can't recover from this kind of internal division. Well, in fact, they ended up dumping Joe Clark as the leader, and they got Brian Mulroney, and they won two back-to-back majority governments. Um, So there are, you know, there are examples both ways on this. But whatever the case, Aaron O'Toole seems to be on a, in a constant battle, a constant fight uh, with his own party, with these kind of stories making the headlines, as opposed to stories about the way he's trying to, you know, shift the balance within, within that party, perhaps shift the tone of, uh, uh, of policy decisions, which may be part of the problem, clearly is part of the problem for him uh, internally. But nevertheless, he's trying to do one thing, and yet daily, certainly weekly, the focus becomes about his leadership. Um, and it doesn't seem to stop. Every time you think, oh, okay, well, you know, I think he's finally buried this problem, it pops up again the next day. Yeah, yeah, I remember it was a few weeks ago we were having a conversation. I think it was one of our conversations on Fridays uh, with Chantal. And I remember saying something to the effect that I think the next several months is really most of the noise is going to be about the conservative infighting um, and not what the liberals are doing. And I don't think that's productive. I don't think it's a good thing for the conservative party. I don't think it's helpful for the country, but I, I couldn't see a scenario where um, the conservative party was going to be able to uh, settle the internal tensions that had been bubbling up over the last several months before and into the period of the election campaign. And uh, and by that, I mean the kind of the instinct to think on the part of several, uh, you know, vocal public uh, party members and maybe more of the grassroots that Aaron O'Toole campaigned as this true blue conservative trying to win the base uh, because he didn't think that that he could maybe compete for the progressive uh, vote with uh, with Peter McKay. And then he turned around and and started introducing more centrist type policies. So, so where do I think um, they are now? Um, I guess I think that they probably will continue to um, worry his leadership until ultimately he's not the leader anymore. I, you know, I just think that that party lacks the, uh, I'm going to use the word discipline, the self-discipline to, um, and I know that some people are going to, decide that that's an unkind or an unfair word. But I think that really, as I look at it, they shouldn't replace him. And here's why I think that, Peter. First of all, uh, I do. I think that there's merit to the argument that he misled people into thinking that he was going to be a more conservative, small C leader than he turned out to be on the campaign trail. So he's guilty of inauthenticity or misleading uh, some people. But on the other hand, that what he was trying to do in the election campaign was reposition the party more directly towards the center, and they need that. So really the question is, um, do they need a, a better prosecutor of their case, or does the party need therapy that moves it more towards a competitive position in the center? And I think it's definitely the second, which isn't to say that he didn't make some mistakes along the way. Second thing is, I think that he has shown that he can campaign in Quebec. And I think it's imperative for the Conservatives to be able to have a conversation with Quebecers. And I think that Aaron O'Toole did better than some people uh, expected him to be able to do. And um, and in the absence of knowing who they would replace him with, um, that could always go worse. 
Uh, but the last and maybe the most important point for me is that people, when they stay in these jobs, they learn, they get better generally. Um, some don't, but you can usually tell the ones who have the ability to get better from those who don't. And, you know, just in the last 24 hours, I've been sort of weighing the evidence on that. I had been thinking that Aaron O'Toole has the ability to get better, but I think he's right in the middle of uh, a very significant test. And the test is, how do you respond to criticism? Do you view it as a platform to say some really uh, powerful and compelling things that everybody who's watching from a distance will hear and say, well, that's a really good point, or I really like the way he made that point, or I like the way he's kind of focused on um, on what needs to happen going forward? Or do you kind of shelter in place a little bit and do you sort of uh, just hope that, that, that this too passes? And I feel like to survive this leadership challenge, he needs to be that leader who sees every attack, because there are going to be more, as an opportunity to make a compelling case for what the Conservatives can offer Canadians, instead of maybe, you know, leaving voicemails, kicking critics out of caucus. I, I don't know that that was, you know, consistent with the approach that I would recommend that he take. But on the whole, I do think he has shown the ability to kind of evolve and improve his effectiveness as a political leader and that parties need to let the public get to know uh, leaders for a period of time before tossing them over the, uh, the side of the deck and, and replacing them with who knows what. I, you know, I, um, I still do wonder whether there's a hidden hand uh, behind all this. You know, when we watched Andrew Shear's demise shortly after the 2019 election campaign, um, you know, his attackers, or those who were plotting against him, were kind of out, out in the open. You knew who they were. You saw them on election night. They started started the attack there, and they, they didn't hold back. Um, here, you know, you obviously you saw the, the senator from uh, uh, the Conservative caucus, uh, Batters, uh, coming after him, and... She just happened to be, by coincidence, she was part of the Peter McKay team last time around, uh, the last leadership race. Whether that means Peter McKay had anything to do with this or not, I, I don't know. And we seem to think that he's kind of out, out of it in terms of not being in a, an active role uh, anymore uh, within the party. But who knows about that? Um, but these things don't necessarily take the active hidden hand of a... Uh, of somebody who wants the job, it can be frontline people who are part of the kind of back rooms of a party can lead a charge like this. And, you know, you do see some of that going on here. You know, uh, you know, some people are not being quiet about things. And as you pointed out, you don't see a lot of big names standing up for him. No, um, no, that's, that's usually, uh, a pretty good indication that the trouble is is worse underneath the hood than it appears on the surface. Um, I think there are probably three groups within his party that um, will probably never feel uh, good enough about him again. Now, whether they, they number um, significantly enough to replace him, to cause the replacement, I think that's really the issue. And, and one group is the pro-life group who feel as though he's not there um, he's not their champion. Um, the second is the climate change 
denier or the group that really doesn't like any policies that look like they'll mitigate the um, the development of oil and gas or the emissions from oil and gas development in Canada. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the, there is a segment in that party that is really dug in on that. And we saw that in the vote at the uh, at the policy convention. Um, and he's right to uh, to say, well, we're, we're not going to um, embrace climate denial. And the third has been the anti-vax uh, sentiment. And, um, you know, if you ask me what are the two biggest problems that he created for himself um, in the last little while that are part of the complex web of challenges that he faces today, one has been um, he's pretty mushy on vaccinations uh, for his MPs. It's been a it's been a situation where you could tell that what he was trying to do was not try to lay down a law for fear that the lawbreakers would decide that, that they were going to stand against him on this. But at the end of the day, he's headed towards uh, Parliament reconvening next week, and we still don't know how many of his MPs are not vaccinated and therefore will not be able to participate in debates in the House. That seems to me to be the kind of problem that solid leadership from a management standpoint solves for. And the second thing is that in the campaign, he didn't really do anything to profile his front bench or even his candidates. And, you know, when we talk about Brian Mulroney as the most successful conservative leader um, from a number of standpoints, I know that there will be those who say that Stephen Harper was a more successful leader, but I, I kind of feel like Brian Mulroney had mastery of a few uh, really important skills. And one was he made sure that people on his team knew that he was their friend, their supporter. He was going to try to help um, give them profile, uh, say positive things about them. And I don't think that Aaron O'Toole did really any of that in the election campaign. And I was surprised at the time. And, and I do think that it's a bill that comes due in a circumstance like this. So he's got work to do. I don't think that um, kicking people out of caucus uh, is necessarily the thing uh, that needs doing. I think Paul Wells wrote a piece yesterday that that I kind of agreed with, which is that he needs to speak up more uh, uh, on the basis of what it is that he wants to offer uh, to Canadians and not just uh, like you, I don't like Justin Trudeau kind of uh, frame. That's not good enough. Um, there's got to be more policy. There's got to be more sense of leadership. There's got to be more ferocity in that kind of language from Aaron O'Toole to ward off uh, this kind of um, this kind of effort by uh, people who are unhappy with him. Um, you mentioned Trudeau, so let's let's close out uh, today's SMT with a little SMT on uh, on Trudeau and his uh, upcoming visit um, to Washington. Uh, they used to call these the the Three Amigos Summit. This was back in the nineties, mainly when Chrétien and Clinton and the Mexican um, leader uh, got together, and it was all pretty, you know, pretty jovial stuff. They seemed to get along. They worked on various things, including uh, the trade agreements. Um, the three amigos kind of disappeared. They certainly disappeared during the Trump years. Trump wasn't interested. He was too busy, you know, trying to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it. 
He didn't get the he wall. He did not like. He didn't get the wall built, and he didn't get them to pay for anything. So, but whatever, there were no, uh, there were no uh, three amigo summits. So, in a way, this is the first one in the post-Trump era. Um, But Trudeau's already out of the gate saying he's going to fight for uh, trying to convince Joe Biden to uh, to back off on the protectionism slant. Now, that'll be quite achievement if he can do that because it's not like it's something new. It's been a part of the discussion on U.S.-Canada relations for at least the last 20 years. Um, and so how how successful he's able to, to be on that will will be one of the ways that this, this summit is judged, I guess. Um, but beyond that, what are, or including that, what are, what are you looking at? Uh, well, I do think it's a really interesting time in the uh, conversation between Canada and the United States. And I, I recommend to uh, any of our listeners, Peter, who are interested in getting a good read on it, um, Alex Panetta is just a fantastic journalist working for the CBC now who has posted a piece about this this meeting and the background for it today. And it was one of the pieces I read kind of preparing for our, our podcast this morning. Um, and I, I do think that if we look at America today, it's hard to find any real free traders in the political ecosystem, real champions for free trade, just as it's hard to find any real fiscal conservatives. So there's been a change in the chemistry of the U.S. political system so that it no longer stands as a beacon for freer trade, for um, for multilateralism either. Right. So it's very uncertain political terrain right now. And one of the reasons for that is that there is this fairly large schism within the Democratic Party between those who say, well, we need to be more like the kind of the US used to be, favor multilateralism and know who our allies were and have arrangements with them that were mutually supportive. And those in the Democratic Party who say, yeah, 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 but really what we have to do is our own kind of democratic version of Trump's America first. And I think that's the situation that Joe Biden has found himself caught in a little bit. Now, to be clear, we do have a couple of things going for us on this on this central policy issue, which is the tax credit for e-vehicles that are assembled in the United States, which is in the uh, in the legislative proposals that Biden has put forward. What we have going for us is the intent of that is not really to harm Canada. It's really about um, dealing with the Chinese uh, threat, the idea that China will start mass producing electric vehicles. And if they're allowed to have access, um, too much access to the American marketplace, then American manufacturers will not be able to really build out their capacity in that market. and I think from a distance, it's easy to see why America would be concerned about that, because Chinese uh, manufacturing does dump products into America and people are looking for cheaper electric vehicles. Um, and um, the Democratic coalition needs to maintain support among labor unions that include auto manufacturing uh, unions. So if the intent is really to uh, to prevent China from overwhelming the U.S. market in in e-vehicles in the years ahead, then it does make sense to me that especially with, and this is the second point, especially with the fact that we've renegotiated NAFTA and that we do have an auto 
trade agreement in place with the United States that we should be able to talk our way through with the Americans, not to a place where uh, there's a, you know, there's a huge announcement that, that, that Canada is now going to be welcome to assemble e-vehicles for Americans. I don't see the politics of that ever happening in this political climate. But if there's a way for these countries to agree that the intent was not to damage or undermine the trade agreement or the relationship, then hopefully that's the kind of conversation that the prime minister and the president can have and, and the kind of outcome that we can be looking forward to. Well, whatever outcome we get will probably be the focus of a good chunk of good talk on uh, Friday uh, when Chantel joins us and that little uh, summit in uh, Washington is over with. It'll be interesting uh, to have that conversation, as it always is on Good Talk and whatever else uh, is streaming across our minds as a as a situation on uh, on Friday. So that's Friday's Good Talk. Tomorrow, of course, uh, on the bridge, we will uh, do a little your turning, uh, get the mailbag out. There's been a lot of mail over the last few weeks, and uh, I want to tackle some of that. Uh, to get your thoughts on a variety of different issues that have come up over the last few weeks. So I'm looking forward uh, to doing that. All right, Bruce, thank you for today, as always. And uh, thank you, Peter. we'll talk to you in a couple of days' time. That's it for The Bridge for this Wednesday. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back at you in 24 hours.